Welcome to the Souls Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soulischurch.com. Today we're going to be in Philippians 3, chapter 20, and we're going to go through chapter 4 to verse 5. Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy, mine crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Eodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we uh, thank Alexia for uh, leading us in our scripture reading? Awesome. And Jameson, our stagehand. Only because he hates the recognition, you know. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's just so good to be here with you. Uh, Even though last week was my first Sunday back, uh, I was out for about three weeks uh, it's still, I'm still getting used to how awesome it is to be with uh, the church here. So uh, welcome. If uh, you're joining us for the first time, I want to just say thanks for, for joining us. It's great to have you. Um, just about a month ago, we celebrated our three-month anniversary uh, as a church. Three years. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun, so you can't really, I don't know the difference. 2020 was a fast year and everything, you know? <laughs> That's a joke. Um, Three years, and uh, it's just been a joy to watch Jesus lead us and um, shepherd us, and uh, it's been an awesome experience. Kyle alluded to a class called Welcome to Solace, which we encourage everyone who's new to our church to attend uh, before really getting involved. I mean, we'd love for you to join a community and and, and plug in right away, but certainly before really serving and getting stuck in that way, uh, it's it's on the last Sunday of every month. It's not in the bulletin this week, but just have that on your radar. Uh, And it's the front door of our church, uh, a place to come and and learn a little bit more about who we are and us to meet you. So yeah, just kind of put that on your radar. And Uh, This morning, as alluded to there in the scripture reading, we are in the book of Philippians, and uh, we've been in the book of Philippians now for, I don't know, like almost three months, I think, started in February, I believe, so three months, and we're just working our way through it, line by line, verse by verse. Uh, We'll be done with our study in Philippians probably in the next three weeks. Uh, I say probably because we'll kind of see how that unfolds, Um, and then we have a whole new series we're doing for the summer that will roll out. and yeah, some exciting stuff on our radar. Uh, the theme and the, uh, the title of our series and study in the book of Philippians is Extraordinary. Extraordinary. The book of Philippians is all about how Jesus and his gospel leads us beyond the limits of an ordinary life. Apart from Jesus, we're stuck within the limits of our humanity. Apart from Jesus, we're stuck within the limits of our circumstances, But through Jesus, we are led beyond the limits of an ordinary life. And I know it's what we are all 
desiring, especially as followers of Jesus. We don't just want the promise of eternal life. That's certainly great. But we also want to live with abundant life. We want to experience all that Jesus has for me even today. And so that's what we are inviting God to produce in our lives as we're studying this book. Uh, And so this morning we kind of went back uh, to kind of go forward. Last week we went through chapter 3. But again, we're going, we looked at verse 20, and we're going to go down to verse 5. Um, and so what I'll do right now is I'll, I'll pray, and uh, what we're going to do is just kind of walk back through these verses and unpack what the Lord has to say to us this morning through them. And I'll just say this, if you're a note taker and uh, you'd like to kind of outline and do that thing, the title of the message this morning is Heavenly Hope in Motion. Heavenly Hope in Motion. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are always postured with gratitude as we come before you. That's, that's really all we, we have to offer here, Lord, with you is just thanks. You've done it all. You're the one who's been faithful. You're the one who's made the way. You're the one who, just as Kyle prayed, you've saved us. And Lord, we're here with gratitude because of that, and we get to be a part of your family and, and to gather together in your name. And, and Lord, we, we get to open up your word and hear from you. And so, God, that's the objective, that's the purpose of our assembly here today. It's for you, Jesus. We're not here out of religious routine. Well, we certainly don't want to be. God, we're, we're not here... For a man and a, and, a, and a man's sermon exclusively, Jesus, we're here for you. You have brought us here. And so we don't want to leave here without you, without encountering you, and, and ultimately, God, hearing from you, hearing from you. So uh, we invite you to speak to us, and even each of us, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to speak to us through your word this morning. God, I ask that you would help me. Enable me, equip me, uh, give me, God, what I need, I pray, to be able to serve you well and honor you and bless uh, the church here this morning. I ask that you'd speak through me, and we pray these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, as you guys know, kind of my custom here, I want to begin with a question this morning that's going to come right out of the text we just read. Uh, The question this morning is simply, what... Does heaven mean to you? What does heaven mean to you? And the reason why I'm asking this question is obviously the word heaven is not an exclusively biblical word. In our cultural vernacular, the word heaven is often used to describe all sorts of euphoric experiences, world-class scenarios. I'm sure we've all been in a situation before where someone said, you know, how was that meal? All right, or how was that date? All right, and maybe you're like, it wasn't heaven. It was, you know, the other one. You know, or, or, or you know, they, they kind of ask you about your experience, and maybe you've been there before. Where you said, man, it was, or this is just heaven. It's heavenly. It's kind of come to be a synonymous with perfect, um, perfect experience, paradise, if you will. I think of really just the weather recently. Been a little warm. Summer's knocking on the door, like, hi, right? I'm coming. Um, 
but just yesterday, what a, what a beautiful day, and, and uh, next to my wife kind of rallying everyone and coordinating some stuff, we got up early yesterday and went down to Red Reef Beach, like 8.30, 9 a.m., and the water was just crystal clear. They have the little reef there, shallow reef for the kids, and Jude and Evie were there swimming around, looking at all the fish, and I had that sort of like, this is heaven on earth kind of experience. What does heaven mean to you, or what is heaven to you? Well... Um, Here in Philippians, as Paul is describing heaven, he means heaven to be, listen, a real place. And it's not a place on earth, contrary to the song that's kind of popular about that. But in scripture, when we talk about heaven, we're talking about a place that's God's space. It's where God resides. It's a place that was once at one point united with earth. When God created man, walking with man in the cool of the garden, there wasn't a separation between God's space and man's space. We know sin has driven that division. We know the hope of Jesus is that one day those two spaces will be united together again when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. But for now, we understand heaven, as as Paul is saying here in this passage, heaven to be a real place. And if you are a Christian... Heaven is very relevant to you. I'm not sure how often you think about heaven, God's space. But it is extremely relevant to you. How relevant? Well, did you see what the Apostle Paul said? It's so relevant that you're a citizen of heaven. In other words, it's your true home, right? Scripture uses this language to say that we are ambassadors of heaven here on earth. And Paul writing to the Philippians, we've talked about this, right? They really understood the weight of this comment that Paul is making. Uh, In Philippi, they were citizens of a Roman colony. It was in Greece, but it was Rome away from Rome. Roman statues, Roman architecture, Roman culture, everywhere you went, it was like Rome in Greece. And And the job of a citizen of Rome was to Romanize the Greek culture, to make it as Roman as possible. And so how amazing is it that Paul says to the church, you are not citizens of Rome exclusively. You are citizens of heaven. How relevant is it to you? You represent it here on earth. That's crazy. And just as a Roman is to Romanize Greece, you as a Christian are to heavenize your context as a citizen of heaven. Really beautiful language. And that's kind of what we got into last week talking about this idea that um, heaven is this place of our citizenship from which we live with eternal perspective and and as ambassadors of Christ with kingdom mission. But as you move through the passage here that we read here in Philippians 3.20, we get this other idea about the relevance of heaven to a Christian. It's this idea that heaven is not only the place of our citizenship. Listen, heaven is also, listen closely, if you are in Christ, heaven is the place of your hope. Heaven is the place of your hope. Um, We see this word that's used there in verse 20. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we live, but also from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. That's such an interesting phrase there, eagerly wait. The idea there is to, to wait for something patiently, but also expectantly. I think of my kids anytime they are aware of some family member or family friend coming over. Uh, Everything kind of breaks down, and they are eagerly waiting. 
They camp out in the living room with the window open. If they, you know, if we allowed them, they'd be in the street, you know, waving down every car, like seeing if it's them. Uh, and now with like the Find My iPhone app, this is usually what happens. Like anytime Brittany goes to the grocery store, and you know, and I'm there with the kids. You know, we're all eagerly waiting for her to get home. <laughs> and, and, you know, have you seen the find my friends thing? And you could actually, it's like the best thing for our marriage and also like the worst thing. It's like, I know where you are right now. It's like, you said that you're on your way, but I got you pinged, okay? You're pegged and pinged. I know where you are. And so even the kids will like watch as mom's coming. And there is this idea of expectant hopefulness, especially with that navigation thing. You know that it's on its way. This is speaking to the biblical nature of hope. You know, when we use hope in a modern context, in a cultural context, we use it as this idea of sort of this wishful outcome. We say, man, I hope that there's waves today. We say that I hope that this thing turns out. I hope I get better. I hope they get healed. And what we're talking about is this desired result. It's not concrete. It's not an expectation. It's like a coin flip. It's a wishful desire. But when scripture talks about the hope that we have in Jesus, it talks about something that we can confidently expect. It's something that we are eagerly waiting for, not kind of like, hopefully Jesus is my savior. Hopefully I spend an eternity with him. But it's no, hopefully. It's full hope. It's I'm eagerly waiting. I'm patient. I'm looking forward. I'm like the Lundy kids looking out the window for that guest that they know is about to arrive. Paul's saying that's how we are with our hope in heaven. What a beautiful posture. Now, what's really interesting about this idea, and which can kind of be confusing, and one of the things that has helped me understand biblical hope a little bit more, which is the only true hope, is to understand that in Scripture, our hope in Jesus that comes through the gospel of Jesus, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of what Jesus has accomplished, our hope in Christ is both a noun and a verb. It's both something that we expect in our hearts as a verb. Faith is the substance of those things hoped for. It's, a, it's something that we live in and that we actually possess in our hearts. But it's also something that's concrete as a reality in heaven. In other words, uh, your hope in Jesus is not dependent upon how hopeful you feel. Does that make sense? Because it's a noun. It's a reality. Now, in light of that reality... You should feel hopeful. You should eagerly wait for what God has promised. But there's this great kind of counterbalance in Scripture to the idea of hope. It's both a noun, an unchangeable reality, and a verb, something that we live with in light of that reality. So a couple places in Scripture that talk about this hope laid up for us in heaven. I love Colossians 1.5 talks about this concept, talks about because of the hope simply, which is laid up for you in heaven. So it's this thing that is up there, regardless of what's going on down here. It's a reality. Probably the best explanation of this is Peter in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, look at this, has begotten us or birthed us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, the idea here is that our hope is contingent upon something outside of us here, right? Our hope here is contingent upon Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, hope is forever alive for the Christian. All right, so he's, he's kind of unpacking this idea. Now, he goes on to say this about our hope. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled 
that does not fade away, look at this, reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that beautiful? And here's the next part of this hope. Who are kept, us who are kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just marinate on that for a second. Try to digest that and personalize that for a second. That through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are these reservations that God has penciled in for you in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have this inheritance that does not fade away. Jesus says, where moth, nor rust, nor thieves can destroy, break in, or steal. And this also is a great sign of hope. Not only is God faithful to reserve our hope up there, but he's also faithful to preserve our lives down here. We who are kept by the power of God. Now, now this is the, the context of what Paul is talking about here in Philippians, reminding these Christians in Philippi, living in a secular culture, that they are not of this earth and their hope is not found in the things of this earth. Their hope is not found in the circumstances of earth. Their hope is not contingent upon who's in power or not in power. Their hope is not contingent upon the direction of culture, whether good or bad. He's leading them to lift their eyes above their circumstance to see what's final, to see what's always going to be true about them. It's the hope that Jesus has provided. It's really beautiful, uh, as, as even Peter is talking about it as an inheritance. If we go back here to the verses we read in Philippians 3, we see that our hope even described here, it takes the form of three things in this specific section. The first thing that we see about our hope, let's kind of talk about the nature of this. We, we've said a lot about this idea that hope is, we have hope in heaven through Jesus. But, but what is the substance of it? I mean, what does that really mean, to be a Christian and to have hope? What exactly do you have? And so we see here in this verse, we have specifically three things. The first thing that we have is we have a person that we're hoping in. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait. Notice what we're waiting for, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a second. Paul doesn't treat Jesus as some means to some greater hope. Paul doesn't say that, you know, you, you go to Jesus to get all these things of heaven. Paul's idea of hope is that you go to heaven to get Jesus. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the treasure. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. As he introduces himself, he goes, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Our hope. So, so first and foremost, we got to understand this. As followers of Jesus, as people of hope, our hope is primarily in a person. Our hope is primarily embodied in the very person of Jesus Christ. We've got to resonate and, and, and really recognize this before anything else. What you and I most desperately needed was Jesus. The greatest gift that you and I have been given is Jesus. He is not the means to some greater thing. He is the great thing. He is the joy of our heart. And in fact, there's this interesting kind of example of this. When, when Jesus is born, and Mary and Joseph, following the custom of the law, bring Jesus down to the temple for some ritual and some consecration, there is a man at the temple named Simeon. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 that this guy Simeon, he was a Jewish man, and he was enlightened and uh, spoken to by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it says, revealed to him 
that he would, uh, it says, not taste death. In other words, he wouldn't, you know, kick the bucket. He wouldn't die. Before seeing the Messiah. Before encountering the hope of Israel. And so there's this beautiful moment where this guy who's like been waiting on this promise from God, eagerly waiting with expectation and anticipation. There's this moment where he gets to hold the baby Jesus. Eight pounds, six ounce, right? Jesus, he, in that is a great moment where he encounters the Messiah, and he sees him with his very eyes. And notice this. This is what he says in, in, in Luke 2, verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This is what he says to the Lord. Isn't this beautiful? But when I think about salvation, I'll just be honest. I don't think my tendency goes immediately to the person of Jesus. I certainly Jesus is the hope of my salvation. But it can really be really easy to kind of have like a self-centered idea of salvation, right? It's like the things I've been bailed out of. You know, it, it's, it's all the implications of what Jesus has done. It's like, and certainly those things are our hope, but may we see Jesus this same way, man. When we hear the name of Jesus as Christians, may we go, my salvation. May we go, my hope. What Jesus has done, he has come to embody my hope. And that is the first thing that Paul says we are hoping in and waiting for. We are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and the idea here is just as Simeon was waiting for him to come the first time, we are like Simeon's in our modern age. And we are waiting for Jesus to come a second time. And he will come as certainly the second time as he came the first time. In fact, that's what the angels told the disciples. You remember this? And in Acts 1, when Jesus ascends up into heaven, it says, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, because that's what we all would be doing, we'd be like, Jesus just floated away. That was awesome. And you're also like, come back, right? As they looked steadfastly toward heaven, I always think of it as like a, a balloon that gets let go of, and you're just watching it. And it's, there comes a point where it's like staring at it's not going to make the balloon come down. Like you got to let it go, right? And the angels are like, it says, so two men showed up in, in white apparel. These are angels. And they say to the men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And here's where the, he, he wants their eyes to be. This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven in his ascension, proclaiming his victory. He will so come in like manner as you saw him go. This same Jesus who saved you from your sin, Christian, soulless church, this same Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return for you. And when he comes, he's coming as a gracious, loving Lord and Savior of those who are in him. This is our hope. Our hope is a person. But it's, it's more than that because our, our hope, though, it's primarily in the person of Jesus. Uh, to have Jesus is to have everything that he has. That's what makes our hope so awesome. It's like my kids. I mean, really, their hope is, is not their house that they get to sleep in tonight with shelter. Their hope is dad, who owns the house. Their hope is not that there's food in the pantry or in the fridge. It's who they have that determines the hope of what they have. Same is true for the Christian. So who do we have? Well, we're eagerly waiting for Jesus, our hope. But because of who we have, notice this next thing that's our hope. It's not just a, a, a person. Our hope is also a promise. Your hope is a promise that's found in a person. What is that promise? That promise, Paul says, is that Jesus, as he returns, look at this promise, he will 
transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This power that Jesus has and this authority is going to come into play in our lives when Jesus returns. This is the hope of the Christian. We have the hope of resurrection. I want us to really merit in on this. I know a lot of us, especially this year, we've become, I think, hopefully more aware of our mortality as human beings. It's, it's good to be aware of your mortality. David says, God, teach me to number my days. Teach me to remember that I, I'm, I'm going to die. So it's, it's a staggering 10 out of 10 statistic. Nobody's beat it, right? De- death is on the horizon. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's, it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of rejoicing. The living take it to heart. They think about the fact that, that life here on earth is not eternal. And as Christians, we should, should be mindful of our mortality. But I wonder if there's this um, imbalance in the church today where we are more mindful of our mortality than we are of our coming resurrection. Are you as mindful of what's to come after death as you are about death itself? And I don't just mean for yourself, I mean for your loved ones who have passed away. Are you mindful of what Paul promises here? That if you are in Christ, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, he who follows me, though he dies in Jesus, he says, you'll live. Now, this is getting into some really important theology about the afterlife. And there's a lot of directions that I can go into with this, and I'll just keep it kind of straight down the middle, and you can come ask me, um, Kyle, questions after service. But, But just in a nutshell, the most important thing that I want us to be reminded about here is just this idea that life after death is not just some ethereal, disembodied state of sort of like bye-bye, pie-in-the-sky, ghostly kind of like, what is this? This is weird. What's happening? No, no. Here's the substance of our hope of eternal life. There's a day coming where resurrection is going to apply to the followers of Jesus. And here's what it says is going to happen. Here's our hope. Our lowly bodies will be conformed to his glorious body. Now, this is what this means. First, our lowly bodies. The word there is our bodies of humility. Um, And and the concept here is that um, though we bear the image of God, we are in fallen flesh. And it doesn't matter how many times, you know, you hit the iron, you pump the gains, you eat your kale, okay? At the end of the day... It's important to exercise yourself and treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit as it is. And, you know, you can't do spiritual things without a physical body. So, you know, be healthy, Andrew. But, um, but the idea here is no matter how disciplined you are physically, there's this truth to the human condition that it's a lowly body. The best of man is still man at best in a lowly body. It's a body of humiliation. The idea here is, is, is we don't stay young forever. We get older. But we're in these bodies of decay. And, and it's, it's a humbling thing. You know, it's a humbling thing to pass away. It's humiliating. It's, it's not glorious. You know, I've been in, in proximity to that more times um, than, than I'd like to have been. And it's, it's not glorious. It's humbling. It's this body of humility. It's a body of limitation. 
There's only so much we can do in this physical body. It's a body of susceptibility to sickness and disease. You know, you can, you can do it all to protect yourself. Mask it up, vax it up. You could do everything, whatever you prefer. We're not going to get into that. That'll be fun. But <laughs> at the end of the day, you have to face the fact that you're in a lowly body and you will die. And, and so here's the hope for the Christian. These lowly bodies of humiliation, limitation, susceptibility will be conformed to a new body. There's a new body coming. It's a, it's a confirmation, a transformation. Notice this, to Jesus' glorious body. That's, that's our future. That's our future state. Now, when we understand this in Scripture, there's a couple of places where, where the Bible talks about this hope as a Christian. Uh, the idea of a new body. Now, let's think about this, okay? This is what we're headed for. Uh, Jesus is the archetype of this. He's the scheme of this. When we see Jesus' glorious resurrected body, we have an example of what, what awaits us. And when Jesus resurrected into his glorious body, the state that we will take on in Christ, what you have is kind of this, like, I don't know, like a complementary balance between continuity and discontinuity of physicality. You have continuity in the sense that Jesus is still in a body. Like one of the first things Jesus says to his disciples after he resurrects is, do you have anything to eat? Think about that. Like, okay, heaven is going to be full of delicious food. It's not like you're going to eat it. It's going to go like out the back of your head or something, okay? You're going to be like, your taste buds are going to be more alive than they've ever been. Do we think about this? And so here's Jesus in a resurrected body, and he's like, I need something to eat. It's material. That's the state. You know, he's like, man, resurrection really works up an appetite. You got anything? I'm hungry. But there's also a sense of discontinuity. Because though Jesus was still in that same form, it was Jesus, it was a physical sense, he also could like appear and disappear. He would just show up in their midst. He would walk through walls and be like, how's it going, guys? The door was closed, but it doesn't matter, all right? Because the wall was open, you know? <laughs> and this is what Paul is saying, that, that listen, this is our hope. I want you to understand this. For your loved ones that have passed on, this has brought me great clarity as... as I eagerly wait for the hope of being reunited with my mom one day. You know, I have the hope, listen, that I will wrap my mom in my arms and hug her in a physical, real, united sense. Think about that. It's not just some, like, I'm going to float over here and, like, you know, it's, it's, it's this substantial hope that the body of sin will be done away with. The hope of resurrection for those who are in Christ will be realized. Uh, the best, ex uh, really, I could have just saved us 10 minutes and just read 1 Corinthians 15, so I'll just do that. All right, this is, um, this is the biblical backing for most of what I just said, and um, okay, I'll just read it. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about resurrection. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also, in that same concept, there are celestial or heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one or the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial one or the earthly one is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown or it dies in its corrupted state in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. 
It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. And this is where uh, Paul hits a grand slam. He says, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. That's Adam. The second man, Jesus, is Lord from heaven. Isn't that awesome? As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That's us. We're a bunch of dust people. Notice this. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly in him. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. What hope. Have you come to grips with the weight of having to bear the image of the man of dust? Do you know that man that you live in, that you struggle in each day? You struggle with sin. You struggle with disease. You struggle with this lowly body. Well, listen, I know it can be exhausting to bear the image of the earthly man. I, I know that cancer can be desperately hopeless at times and exhausting as we see the image of the man of dust even in cancer. But we who have borne the image of the man of dust, we have this hope that there is a day coming where we will bear the image of another man. We will bear the image of the heavenly man in a resurrected state. Amen? Our hope is, yeah, you can praise Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Our, our hope is a person. Our hope is a promise. Our hope is also a power. It's a power. So, so he says this, that Jesus is going to transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Notice how he's going to do it. According to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. Now, again, our hope is who? It's Jesus. And because of who we have, it's what we have. And it's resurrection. It's eternal life in a resurrected um, state where there is no death, sickness, disease, or sorrow. But why we have this hope is this power. That's our hope, Jesus' power. This power by which he is even able to subdue all things to himself. This is an interesting concept, subdue all things to himself. It, it means to put everything in its proper order and rank. I love that. That Jesus has a power that he has displayed on earth and will display as he returns and for all of eternity. And it's a proper power. It's, this, it's only the power that Jesus has to put things where they belong. To, to put what's wrong and take it and make it what's right. This is the power that Jesus has. This is also the hope we have. Um, as we look around this world, we have a world that obviously it's broken. Obviously things aren't in their proper rank. There's abuse and there's injustice and there's sin in the systems and in, the, in, the, in the, the format of this world, both in the home and beyond. There's sinfulness and brokenness. Because, of course, we know there's been a fall. This is not as things were meant to be. And, and it can be a little disingenuous sometimes. I, I, I think that it's, it's obviously the right thing to say when we tell people that God is in control. God is in control. And that's God is sovereign. God, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is Lord of all. He is seated on his throne. Yet, 
when we say that sort of haphazardly, oh, it's everything, everything, God's in control, it's like, well, this, this situation I'm in right now of abuse, this situation right now of death and loss, doesn't feel like it's in control. It feels out of control. And so that's important to acknowledge that, that things are not as they should be. Saying God is in control is not some kind of escape. We can't escape from the reality of how broken things really are. Now, that's a truth, but the way we should proclaim that is, listen, God is in control despite how out of control things have made things, how sin has made things. And God is so in control that there's a day coming where he's going to take everything out of control, and he's going to subdue it unto himself. He's going to make it right. Every kingdom, the Bible says this in Revelation, there's a day coming where um, the kingdoms of this world, I love this, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. There's a day coming where we would say, well, isn't the kingdoms of the world already belong to God? I mean, yes and not yet. It's the already not yet kingdom. The kingdom of God has broken in, beginning to make things right, and there's a day coming where that power will subdue all things perfectly. Now, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, what we, which where, is where we transitioned into, is probably one of the most important verses in light of this hope. So we unpack this hope. We understand that it's in heaven. It is a person primarily through which we have this, this promise of eternal life and resurrection because of this power that Jesus has by which one day he's going to bring all authority and rule under his. And then here in Philippians 4, there's a verse that we could read, especially out of its context because it's a new chapter. We've got to remember when Paul's writing this letter, he's not like, okay, chapter 3, verse 20. All right, like you don't write letters that way. Maybe you do. That's, if you do, that's pretty cool, actually. But Paul's not doing that. He's not writing chapters and verses. So, so chapter 4, verse 1 is, is in the, the flow of what Paul is talking about with our hope. And the way that we piece it together is with this simple word there in verse 1, therefore. This is huge. Paul is going to go on to describe the implications of, of what it looks like to actually live in light of this hope. You know, it's one thing to be like, man, that's great. Jesus is coming back. That's, he's my hope, and resurrection's my hope, and, and eternal life is my hope. And, and I know that despite how broken things are, I, I hope in Jesus. He's going to make things right one day. And Paul would say, okay, well then, therefore, if this is your hope, here's how it should translate and take motion in your life. Tim Keller says it beautifully this way, uh, this kind of simple concept. He says, what we believe about the future is one of the best predictions for how we act today. What you truly believe about the future hope you have in Jesus is displayed and predicted by how you act. I think we could admit in a lot of ways this past year, maybe we didn't act like the hope we had. There are times where I certainly don't act in accordance to the hope that I have in Jesus. But what Paul is calling us to is to be so conscious and so filled with the hope we have in Jesus that it translates into how we live. It translates into how we walk through what we walk through. When we experience loss, when we experience disappointment, when we face temptation, when we walk through trial, when we get into conflict, is the hope of Jesus the motivator, and the lens through which you are living. Uh, we go back to this verse in 1 Peter 3. Remember this? We looked at this in the beginning. And here, when Peter's talking about our hope, I want you to notice the word he uses. He says, according to the abundant mercy of God, Jesus has begotten us again. This is really important. It says, to a living hope. 
The word living there means to be made alive or lively. The, the idea there is it's not just a hope that's a theory or a concept, but it's hope in motion. It has action. It has activity to it. As Tim Keller says, what I believe about the future is going to affect how I live with a living hope. It's, it's true of everything and anything. I mean, whatever uh, my kids believe about the future, of their consequences, I notice that. It's, uh, it's, it's a way to get them to act a little different, okay? Like, if you, you believe this about the future? Because it's coming if you don't change, right? It's amazing how that can get now. And if they kind of go, well, you say that all the time. I don't believe it's going to happen, right? You're bluffing. They're going to act a whole other way, aren't they? They're like, my actions don't have consequences. But it's, it's the same concept. And so that's what Paul is calling us to with the simple word of therefore. Therefore, are you living in light of your hope. He says, therefore, and he says a couple ways to do that. Therefore, here's how to live in light of your hope. He says, stand fast in the Lord. If you believe the hope you have in Jesus, it should translate into this posture that stands firm. The word there, stand fast, it's a military term that describes a soldier uh, holding his ground, maintaining his, his place, his position. Where has he been posted? Well, he's going to stand there despite what comes his way. And we as Christians also, we need to stand fast in this hope. This hope should cause you to not be moved when, let me say this, when trials and temptations come your way. You see, hope is the, the call and it's the power to keep going when your trials are exhausting you. To stand firm when things around you are testing you. Hope is also the power to get through the trials and the temptations that you walk through because you look to an eternal reward. And, and usually I've found these tend to go together when it comes to standing firm. It's amazing how much stronger temptation tends to be in trial. Have you noticed that? We're looking for some kind of release, some kind of hope, some kind of way out. But Paul says, in light of your hope, stand fast in the Lord. Um, I, I think of Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have is an anchor for the soul, right? The storms of life are raging. When temptation and the wind of culture or the wind of your flesh is leading you this way, you have an anchor in Jesus. You look to the hope of his presence, the hope of his promises, the hope of even his own person. Uh, th then Paul talks about not just standing fast, but then in verse 2 and 3, this is a really interesting section where in light of this hope, remember, therefore, in light of this hope, he calls out two women in the church in light of the hope of God, right? That's normal. Imagine that. I talk about the hope of God, then I'm like, all right, I need two females. You two, you got a problem. We got to talk about this in church. Both of you stand up. In light of your hope, stand up. Like, I mean, think about this. Probably Epaphroditus, one of the, one of the ministers, is, is reading this letter. And imagine there, you're, you're one of these two ladies who, like, have a different name, but... Um, Yodelehi who and Sintike, all right? There's some conflict between them, and, and, and we don't know exactly what it is. Um, we don't know the source of their conflict. What's interesting is that their names mean luck and success. That'll, that, that'll TED Talk right there, okay? <laughs> luck and success have a conflict. It's like, if I was like in those get-rich-quick schemes, I'd probably use that. Be like, you know. Anyway. 
But there's a conflict between these two women. And, and as Epaphroditus is reading the letter, and, and, and you, know, you imagine they're all there, amen, yes, I'm going to stand fast, this hope. And then I implore you, Odia. She's like, huh, Paul? You say my name, right? You ever had that happen where like your name gets called in public, but you're like, I didn't just hear my name get called, you know? It's like, no, they called your name. That was Paul, the apostle calling you out, all right? And, but not just Euodia, but it's kind of this equal field. I also implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Um, he says, I urge you also, true companion. We don't know exactly who he's talking about there. It's a Greek word. Some people think maybe it's somebody's name. Their name is true companion. It's a cool name. Uh, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Help them be united with Clement also. We don't exactly know who that is either. And with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, so this is really interesting. A lot of things going on here. Um, many scholars believe, and it, it seems to even be communicated here as Paul talks about these women who labored with him in the gospel, um, that Paul, you know, I, I think the Lord cares about any disunity and division in, in his church. But it seems that these two women are spiritual leaders in the church. They are pioneering the work of the gospel. They are laboring, opening up their homes likely and ministering. And so the conflict between them is so severe, whatever it is, that Paul's writing saying, these fellow workers of mine, they need to work this thing out. Notice that, that Paul isn't so concerned with their conflict. It matters. What, what Paul is most concerned with is their unity. It's important to be unified. He says, and notice this, he says, be of the same mind. Now, this doesn't mean that they have to agree on everything, because that doesn't happen. Even like, I don't even always agree with myself. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's not going to perfectly happen. You're like, is that possible? I guess it is. But it, do you agree? I don't know. All right? But you get it. It's, he's not saying you have to agree on everything. The word there, be of the same mind in the Lord, is, is, is these two women who are at conflict. He's, the idea there is to be intent on the same ultimate goal, which is God and his kingdom. Put your differences aside. Resolve the conflict for the sake of the kingdom. And, and notice that sometimes this kind of unity and um, resolution, it requires third party. He's like, church, help these women. And I, I've had this in my life because here's what I know, and you know this too about conflict. What is the human tendency in conflict? It's to bolt. The bend is to bolt, Right? My tendency isn't to repair what's broken. It's usually this, to replace what's broken. So you have a friend, and you're Syntyche, and she's Euodia. And, or you're Euodia, okay, she's Syntyche. And there's a conflict. Maybe, and I want you to think about for a second, who is that person for you? And there's a tendency, when there's conflict, you know what's really easy to do? Instead of doing the hard thing, which is fight for unity, it's really easy to just go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find a new friend. I'm going to find a new church. Ooh, there's conflict in this church. I've got to find a new church where there's more conflict, okay? Where the, what's the verse in Proverbs? Where there are no ox, the trough is clean. Where there are no people, the church is clean, okay? Where there are no teenagers, the bedroom's clean. Like you can keep going, right? And, and this is what we tend to do. Is there conflict? I'll, I'll get a new husband, Seriously. Is there conflict? I'm going to be in another community group. This is too hard. And what Paul is trying to show us is that unity matters. And, con and man, conflict, it's God's way to bring something together in a deeper way that wasn't there before. It usually is. I want, you to, I want to point out, like, these women aren't sinful women in conflict. These are godly women. 
You know, conflict happens. It doesn't mean you're sinful because you're in conflict. It means you're human. And it means that, that, that it's, it's a normal part of God's plan for your life. So, it, so this is what Paul's saying. Notice that he draws their attention to the book of life, right, their hope. He's like, get your mind and, and, and your attention off of your tendency and, and seek to be united, even if it takes the help of others. It doesn't mean that you, you know, Euodia and Syntyche need to be like each other's bridesmaids, all right? It doesn't mean that you guys got to become best friends. That, that's not, resolution and reconciliation are not the same thing in Scripture. Sometimes the best thing to do when you resolve with someone, if it's a toxic relationship, if there's abuse, it's to, separation is healthy for both you and the party. So the idea here is not, you know, perfect unity in the sense of uniformity, but it's a pursuit of unity because of the hope in the gospel. So, so there's two more of these. So he says to stand firm in light of the hope. He says to fight for unity despite our tendency to bail on conflict, fight for unity. And then he says one of the most famous verses from Philippians. He says, in light of this hope, therefore rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason to what Paul is saying here. He's just kind of like, you have tremendous hope in Christ, so stand firm. You have tremendous hope in Christ, so fight for unity and conflict. And now he's like, while I'm talking about stuff about Jesus, pretty much like random, he's like, rejoice in the Lord always. I love that he says, again, I will say rejoice, because he's already said it 16 times in Philippians. You know, if you read the book of Philippians, a lot of people will, will communicate this, that, that joy and rejoicing is one of the prominent themes, the rejoicing and the hope that we have in Jesus. And, and I love that Paul, you know, it's so nice. He has to say it twice. So important that he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Paul is talking about a spiritual discipline that we're called to. This is a command. This is one of Paul's last commands in Scripture. The command there is to rejoice. And notice how often, always, that's difficult. How does Paul expect me to do that? How does Paul expect me to rejoice all the time? Especially when like times get hard and I don't feel like rejoicing. I feel like complaining. I feel like, you know, weeping. And the key to what Paul is saying here, of course, is where he's calling us to rejoice. And it's in the Lord. There's something about rejoicing in who God is, coming back to that place. I love the way that Kyle prayed it, that, that we would um, have God restore to us the joy of his salvation. Rejoicing in the Lord. Now, sometimes you can rejoice in the Lord through your circumstances. Sometimes things work out a way that you go, that was God, and I rejoice in him. But this always thing here is challenging us to learn the practice of rejoicing in the Lord even when things aren't turning out the way I wanted because you still have a reason. Because the Lord is still who he is. Because God has still saved you. Don't, don't get used to that. Because God has rescued you and loved you and filled your life with tremendous hope. Rejoice in the Lord always in light of who he is. And then lastly, I'll invite the band to come up to close us out and we're going to come to the Lord's table here. Lastly, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. And then he kind of circles it back around. He says, the Lord is at hand. Another word for at hand is nearby. So he's present and he's coming. He's returning. In light of this, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. This is the last kind of way that he calls us to live out our hope. 
and it's interesting. At first, it's kind of more like spiritually me and, and uh, how I'm walking. And then he talks about our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ and fighting for unity. And then he talks about kind of my relationship with God and rejoicing always. And now he talks about my relationship, this is interesting, to all people, to everyone, to all men. Here's what he says. You need to let it be known. Isn't that interesting? It takes intention. Let it be known to all men that you are a gentle person. That's tough. Um, the, the word gentleness there, it's interesting. It's, not a, uh, it's hard to translate into English. It can mean a lot of different things. Listen to this. Uh, gentleness, this can refer to contentment first with others. It's an interesting idea. Maybe there's someone that you're like not quite content with. You're like discontent towards them and with them. It can refer to this idea of gentleness. It can refer to mercy or leniency towards the faults and failures of others. Mercy and leniency towards the faults and failures of others. Let the way that you're merciful and lenient towards other people's faults, let that be known to all men. It can refer to patience in someone who doesn't retaliate against wrongdoing. That's interesting. The, the, the contrast of this word in Greek is retaliation. It, it's a retaliatory spirit. And, and Paul is getting to something interesting here. He's, he's getting to the importance of what you're known for. You know, it's really easy to be like, it doesn't matter what people think. Only God can judge me, Tupac, you know. But he's like, no, like, what you're known as is a testimony. It matters because you're a witness, listen, to who God is. And he's just like this. The idea is he's been just like this to you. I love that he, he tacks onto this, the Lord is at hand. In other words, think about Jesus. When we think about Jesus, let, let me ask you, do you think about someone who is mercy, merciful rather, and lenient towards your faults and failures? Thanks be to God that Jesus is merciful towards my faults and failures, which are many. What about someone who is patient when I sin, when I do wrong? He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't judge me. Really, you can encompass this word gentleness with graciousness combined with humility. This is our Savior. This is the one we're waiting for. The Lord who is at hand, who has that same posture towards us. And this is where it has to be brought back to as we come to the Lord's table. It's got to come back to who Jesus is. Not who you are and who you need to be. How you need to hope more. Hope more. Go, right? It's like, it comes back to fixing your eyes where they need to be. These aren't things that we force out of our lives. The Christian life isn't working fruit out. It's bearing fruit. It's not, oh man, i got to stand firm. i got to be united. It's not this effort that's self-centered. It's this effort that responds to Jesus, fixes our eyes on Jesus. That's where we have to fix our eyes. He's our hope. He's the one that has secured for us everything we could ever hope for. And he did so ultimately by going to a cross. No one took his life. He laid his life down out of his love for you and for me. Though we were sin, Jesus, who was righteousness and knew no sin, on the cross he became your and my sin. Became sin on, on, on our behalf. 
to make us the righteousness of God in him, to declare us clean and holy in him, and then to rise from the grave, securing our greatest hope. See, that's where our eyes need to be on Jesus.